This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. Chapter 11, The Jubilee Principle. The only long-term solution to hunger and malnutrition in the third world is increased agricultural productivity there. That will mean land reform. Ronald Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, page 218. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. Deuteronomy 27:17 One of the most cherished myths of the Christian socialist movement is that the Old Testament law of the jubilee year, Leviticus 25, had something to do with redistribution of wealth. Because of what seems to be a studied ignorance of scripture among evangelicals, this utterly untenable interpretation has gone virtually unquestioned. Even those who at a gut level disagree with Sider still feel vaguely uncomfortable about the Jubilee. Granted, if the Bible really does command redistribution, we have no choice but to submit to it willingly and cheerfully. But the question must always be, what does the Bible really say? We have seen that Old Testament society lived in terms of seven-year cycles. The final year of each cycle was a year in which the land was to receive a rest and debtors were to be released from their obligations. At the end of seven cycles, 49 years, the 50th year also was to be proclaimed as a year of rest and all all believing slaves were released. More than this, however, was the fact that the lands which had been sold during the previous 50 years, had to be restored to their owners. The land of Canaan had been parceled out to the various tribes and the families within those tribes. The property which they owned could not be permanently alienated from them. Because of debts, a man might have to put up his land for lease, but in the Jubilee year, the property had to return to him. It is this aspect of the law which is especially seized upon by those who would use the Bible to justify socialism. What use does Sider make of the Jubilee law? First, he says, At the heart of God's call for Jubilee is a divine demand for regular, fundamental redistribution of the means for producing wealth. God therefore gave his people a law which would equalize land ownership every 50 years. The Jubilee principle is thus one of massive economic sharing among the people of God. In terms of this, we can see that God's word is opposed to laissez-faire economics and stands firmly on the side of human rights over against property rights. Presumably, people who own property are not human and thus have no rights. If the principle of the Jubilee is to be applied to the modern age, how does Sider envisage its implementation? 
Sider has several ideas about how Christians can live the Jubilee, but two of his proposals deserve particular mention. Number one, stating that tariffs and commodity agreements seem just and desirable, he claims also that they are very modest in comparison to the year of Jubilee. We have already noted something of how just these practices are. But for Cider, they are only modest in terms of whatever it is he would really like to see. We must discover new concrete models for applying this biblical principle in our global village. He longs for a new generation of economists and political scientists who will devote their lives to formulating, developing, and implementing a contemporary model of Jubilee. If you had hoped that Sider's ventures into international politics were simply temporary aberrations, think again hard. He's only just begun. Number two, he suggests that we select a year in which to celebrate a modern jubilee. All Christian worldwide would pool all Christians worldwide would pool all their stocks, bonds, and income producing property and businesses and redistribute them equally. There would undoubtedly be a certain amount of confusion and disruption. Hmm. But then good things are seldom easy. In comparing Sider's views with the biblical Jubilee laws, we should note that at the outset that he is becoming that he is being somewhat hypocritical in all this since he does not really believe the Jubilee laws are valid at all. Quote, I certainly do not think that the specific provisions of the year of Jubilee are binding today, Unquote. and neither do I. But if we both agree that this legislation is no longer binding, why bring it up at all? Sider answers that the basic principles, not the specific details, are important and normative for Christians today. This allows him to exercise his penchant for abstracting what he regards as principles and pouring his own content into them in disregard for the biblical context. The Old Testament laws of land tenure for the twelve tribes of Israel are translated into price controls, redistribution of income, and whatever Sider's new generation of political scientists comes up with. But Sider is correct about one thing. The Jubilee Law is not binding today on several counts. It refers specifically to the land of Israel which God had divided among the twelve tribes. By divine fiat, the Israelites became the original owners. The previous owners, the Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, etc., were forever dispossessed because God had declared that the land belonged to his people. No other landowner can make this claim. I may buy or sell property, but I cannot claim a divine right to anything in the sense that the Israelites could. We cannot establish the Jubilee anywhere outside of Palestine, for we have no starting point. Who is the original owner of your property? The Native American Indians? Aside from the fact that the Indians had no sense of private property and land as we as we with our Christian heritage know it, 
the American Indians aren't original owners either. They wrested it from people who were here previous to them. The original ownership of Israel was a creative act of God and is simply inapplicable anywhere outside of the promised land of Israel. Until Sider gets around to claiming his own deity and dis- decreeing original ownership, the Jubilee land laws have no relevance anywhere else. To abstract them from their context is to commit the same error as demanding the annihilation of modern Canaanites. There are no biblical laws for original land tenure outside of Israel. Moreover, the Jubilee laws about the land are invalid even in modern Palestine, not counting the fact that the records of title holders were destroyed in A.D. 70, making it impossible to apply the law anyway. The land tenure laws are inapplicable after the coming of Christ. The Jubilee was typological, that is, it was a symbolic prefiguring of the work of Jesus Christ. The reasons for this take us back to God's original promise of the land to Abraham in Genesis 13:15 and 17, verse 8. Paul was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and interpreted these statements as in reality a promise of Christ. Galatians 3, verse 14 and verse 16, and says that Christians are inheritors of God's promise to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 29. He was a guarantee of real, how was a guarantee of real estate a promise of Christ? This is because Palestine was no ordinary land. It was to be the scene of the most significant events in redemptive history, culminating in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. <coughs> Therefore, when God pledged the land to Abraham, he was in reality giving him a capsulized promise of the gospel. Galatians 3 verse 8 since the blessing of all nations was intimately tied up with Abraham's possession of the land. The promise was to Abraham's seed, that is, believers, Galatians 3.29, for an everlasting possession, and this is immediately followed by the words, and I will be their God, Genesis 17, verse 8. To truly possess the land was to truly possess Jesus Christ, God's holy seed, because he is what gave the land its definition and purpose. Without Christ, the promise of the land is empty and worthless. It is no gospel and no real source of blessing to anyone, Jew or Gentile. But because Christ came in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, The land, in its real meaning and significance, is ours forever. In terms of this, the Jubilee required that the land could not be permanently alienated from godly heirs. This was a symbol that God would never leave or forsake his people, that by his grace his people would remain in the land instead of getting kicked out as Adam and Eve were and as were the previous heathen inhabitants of the land 
who were spewed out of the earth. Leviticus 18, 24 through 29. God's people have an atonement in Jesus Christ. The effects of the curse still visited upon those outside of Christ are being reversed through the grace of God in the gospel. Therefore, the announcement of the Jubilee was made on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 25, verse 9. After seven sevens of years, a perfect fullness. Leviticus 25, verse 8. Symbolizing Christ, who came in the fullness of the time. Galatians 4, verse 4. The Jubilee was clearly ceremonial, pointing to our atonement, liberty and security in Christ, whose coming marked the favorable year of the Lord as he himself proclaimed release to the captives. Luke four eighteen and 19. Compare Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But Israel rejected liberty in Christ, choosing instead to be enslaved to Satan and the Roman Antichrist. In spurning Christ, they thereby forfeited their right to the land. So the curses of the law were reinstated. The Jews were driven out, and their land was confiscated. Christ, like the land which spoke of him, spews the ungodly out of his mouth. Revelation 3, verse 16. However, we must examine further the specifics of the Jubilee Laws in order to see just how much the actual principles conflict with Sider's version. In some ways, the Jubilee actually furthered inequality. For one thing, it did not equalize incomes. The unlucky Israelites who had to sell his land between Jubilee years to a more successful entrepreneur did not share in what might be high profits coming from the wise use of the property. The best man still won. The land was used by those who were best able to manage it, as demonstrated by their own successes that enabled them to purchase it in the first place. And when the original owner received it back, it would not exactly be in prime income-producing condition for it would have lain fallow with no labor expended on it for at least a year. This is obviously vastly different from pooling all stocks, bonds, and income-producing property, as Cider would like to see. The restored land was not producing any income at all. The income was already gone in the hands of the wealthy businessman who had had the use of the land. The Jubilee constituted an extra Sabbath year as well, Leviticus 25.11, so that the one who received it back would not be able to plan it until the 51st year, in which case it would not be income producing until after the harvest, about a year and a half after he, he repossessed it. It must be remembered, however, that these are merely inconsequential details. Ronald Sider stands for the principles involved, the expropriation of income-producing property, and the control of prices 
at gunpoint. But there's even more to the Jubilee Law than this. The laws of inheritance are naturally involved in the question of just who is to receive the land. In biblical law, the firstborn son receives twice as much as the other sons. Deuteronomy 21.17 As my second son will be happy to inform you, that is a significant inequality. Moreover, a father has the right to disinherit an ungodly son and pass an inheritance along to a godly servant. Proverbs 17.2 Ultimately, the godly will inherit all things and the wicked are dispossessed entirely. Proverbs 13, 22, 28, verse 8, Revelation 21, verse 7. Thus, even some Israelites did not receive land in the Jubilee year. Also, it must be remembered that immigrants were generally among the poorest members of society. They were not affected by the Jubilee provisions about land, nor were their interest-bearing debts canceled. Many, if not most, of the poor would be in this category, and the Jubilee did nothing for them. In this connection, we should consider the subtle shift Cider employs in his axe-grinding abstractions. He implies that the Jubilee was a complete redistribution of the means of production across the board. Everything is equalized among everybody. As we have seen, it was not the poor who got land, but the poor Israelite with the familial inheritance who was restored to his ancestral land. Many poor were excluded, all non-Israelites and some Israelites who were disinherited. But Sider overlooks this completely. The year of Jubilee envisages an institutionalized structure that affects everyone automatically. <coughs> In an important article on the Jubilee, Gary North adds an important dimension to our understanding of its real function. Quote, When Israel left Egypt, there were approximately 600,000 men plus women and children. Exodus 12:37 plus a mixed multitude, Exodus 12:38, as many as two and a half million Israelites may have been involved in the Exodus. We do not know how many came into the land of Canaan with Joshua, <coughs> but there were probably no fewer than the numbers who had escaped from Egypt. But the size of the land conquered by Israel was probably not much larger than 8 million acres. Thus, the per capita holdings of land were not that great. <coughs> but what about population growth? God promised them that if they remained covenantally faithful, they would be given extended life expectancy, Exodus 20, verse 12, and they would not experience miscarriages, nor would their animals. Exodus twenty three twenty six. <coughs> Here are two of the three conditions of a population explosion, long lives and higher survival rates. The third is a high rate of births per married couple. 
While this was not expressly promised, it was understood that large families were basic to God's blessings. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. <coughs> Their experience in Egypt testified to the astounding possibilities for population growth. If 3,000 covenanted household servants entered the land of Egypt with the 70 lineal descendants, then they multiplied to 2.5 million in about 135 years. <coughs> How do we know this? Because the execution of the Hebrew males began about 80 years before the Exodus, and the total time that they spent in Egypt was about 215 years. This was understood by the writers of the Septuagint, the Greek language translation of the Old Testament, two centuries before the birth of Christ. They added the words, and in the land of Canaan, in Exodus 12:40. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt, and in the land of Canaan, was 430 years. Paul informs us that it was 430 years from the Abrahamic covenant to the Exodus. Galatians 3:15 through 17. <coughs> so about half of this time was spent in Egypt. And this was the belief of Josephus, and it is the case offered by Donovan Corville in his important book, The Exodus Problem and Its Ramifications. After the infanticide edict, the population growth of the Hebrews slowed rapidly. By the time of the Exodus, they were in a steady state pattern with one boy and one girl per household. We know this because 40 years after the Exodus, approximately the same number of males entered the land of Canaan. To achieve <coughs> this sort of zero-growth pattern after a period of rapid growth, there must be one or more generations of slow growth. For if there is high growth in one period, and then the birth rate subsequently falls to the replacement rate of 2.1 children per woman, there will still be a high population growth due to the large number of young women entering the childbearing years. This is happening in the United States at the present time. Remember, this was back in, 19, in the 1980s. Birth rate below 1.8 per woman, yet continuing growth due to immigration into the U.S. and the large number of families being formed as a result of the post-war baby boom. Thus, the growth from 3,000 to 10,000 to 2.5 million took place in the first two generations in Egypt. This points to large numbers of conversions to Judaism and the adoption of these circumcised converts into the original 12 families. If 3,000 came to Egypt, then the growth rate was over 5% per annum, historically unprecedented in terms of births alone. If 10,000 came in, then the rate was about 4.17 per annum, slightly higher than the extremely high 4.13% annual rate of increase 
of uh, of one of one of the incomparably fertile Hutterite communities in the United States in the early 1950s. It is more likely that conversions accounted for much of this increase in Egypt. But the combination of births and conversions expanded the Hebrew population rapidly, as Pharaoh noted. Had a rate of 4.17% per annum continued, let alone increased as a result of zero miscarriages, they would have multiplied from 2.5 million to 10 billion, twice today's total world population, in less than 200 years after the Exodus. This gives you some idea of the potential for growth which God's promise, coupled with a comparable rate of growth and conversions, offers. It means that within a century, the whole world of their day would have come to the true faith. There were not billions of people from which to draw converts, of course. But to have achieved this, they would have had to remain covenantally faithful to God. They didn't remain faithful. The Dominion Covenant is an ethical covenant when men conform themselves rigorously to God's law through God's grace, they are to expect incomparable blessings. The whole earth is to come under covenant man's jurisdiction as rapidly as possible. The rule of God's law on earth is not to be delayed for old time's sake. God offered the Hebrews world dominion when they entered Canaan. Canaan was little more than a point of embarkation. They did not respond ethically to the requirements of God's law. But if they had, it should be clear how little the Jubilee year would have been worth to any given family. With per capita land of about four acres per person when they entered Canaan, not accounting any of the mixed multitude who may have covenanted themselves to Israel. Caleb, for example, was the son of a Kenite. Joshua 14, verse 6. It was clear to them what large families would do to the inheritance of each family member. It would shrink to insignificance. The more faithful the Israelites were to the covenant, the faster the inheritance per capita would shrink. What the Jubilee year represented to a faithful community was simple, an incentive from God to spread across the face of the earth. There would be no hope in land ownership in Israel for a covenantally faithful community. God was offering them worldwide dominion. No family in Israel could hope to remain in the land and prosper. Each family had to prepare its heirs to make plans to move to distant lands, to infiltrate and gain control over the kingdoms of the world. Through such activities as money lending, Deuteronomy 23 verse 12, the spoils of war in Joshua's day could not be relied upon for more than one or two generations if the sons of the covenant remained faithful. There would be too many sons of the covenant 
for the tiny nation to support. This is not the sort of exegesis we find in the socialistic interpretations of the radical Anabaptist, yet the logic of the demographics of dominion is obvious. The Jubilee year could become economically significant to a family only if the land was in sin and the curse of zero growth was upon them. If the Jubilee year worked at all in the land of covenantally faithful Israel or in any land which came under the rule of God's law, it worked as a disincentive to remain in the land of one's fathers. It was God's way to tell faithful societies to have no hope in geography. Godly men cannot plan on inheriting a portion of an original inheritance, the spoils of war. They must make plans to move outward, bringing the whole world under God's law. Again, Sider has blown his cover. He has no intention of submitting to biblical standards of justice. He uses the Bible to mask his real intentions with a superficial Christian flavor. But what he wants is socialistic redistribution of capital. The Jubilee for a limited time and in a limited area called for restoration, not redistribution, nor equalization of specified non-income producing ancestral lands to deserving heirs. It cannot be applied outside of Israel. It cannot be applied after the resurrection of Jesus. And it cannot legitimately be used as a smokescreen for socialism. If Ronald Sider is really concerned for the poor, he would seek to implement the biblical poor laws we have studied. If he were concerned for the poor, he would seek to encourage the godly investment of private capital so that real wealth for all of society would rise. If he were really concerned for the poor, he would encourage them to build, work, and save for the future, resisting the attempts of an ungodly state to enslave them. If he were really concerned for the poor, he would try to prevent the state from playing God. If he were really concerned for the poor, he would teach obedience to God's law as the means for obtaining God's blessings throughout our land. The fact that he does the very opposite of these things raises an important question. What does he really want? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. 
May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.